Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Ken Raggio Live. Thank you for joining me tonight. Got a special message from God's Word. The subject is the healing power of repentance. The healing power of repentance. Now, if you're a Christian or Bible believer of any kind, I'm sure you've dealt with this subject uh, many times in the past, but we're going to take a fresh look at it. I think you're going to be uh, enriched and helped by what we have to say about the subject tonight. So please stay with me. Thank you for joining me. Uh, please click like on this post if you're watching on Facebook. If you're on YouTube, BitChute, or Rumble, please uh, subscribe to my channels there and help me by sharing this post tonight so we get this message to as many people as we possibly can. Again, thanks for joining me. My subject is the healing power of repentance. Beginning in the book of Exodus, chapter 32, uh, I hope you'll stay with me for a little while. I'm going to try not to keep this too long, but I would like to go in-depth to this subject in a way that perhaps you've never uh, studied this subject. I think you're going to get something out of it that maybe you've never even considered. In the 32nd chapter of Exodus, chapter 32, verse 7, the Lord said to Moses, Get thee down for thy people which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Now the scenario here is in the wilderness after they've been delivered from Egypt. You'll remember that Moses went up into the mountain to meet God, and that's where he received the Ten Commandments. God himself carved the message into stones that he himself prepared. It was quite a supernatural, miraculous occasion for Moses to be able to come down the mountain with the Ten Commandments. But at the same time, there was a great tragedy going on down in the valley where the children of Israel under Aaron's leadership had created golden calves and had begun a golden calf and began to worship this golden calf and God was greatly distressed and so God said to Moses uh, get thee down for thy people which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves they have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them they have made a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed thereunto and said these be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. I want to you to uh, uh, take a look at what is actually happening here. God is so incensed at what he's seen the children of Israel do down there, worshiping that golden calf, that he tells Moses, basically, just back off, son. I'm going to destroy these people, and I'm going to raise up another nation under your name. So, effectively, God's saying, Moses, you're the only one I'm going to save. I'm going to kill everybody, and we'll just start over with you. We'll, we'll start with your children and we'll, we'll build another nation. And so God was extremely, I mean, it's, it's hard to overestimate or overstate the radical anger and wrath of God that has been provoked by this golden calf scenario. But Moses, in verse 11, besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt? with great power, and with a mighty hand. Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, For mischief did he bring them out, to slay them in the mountains, 
and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. My goodness, folks. I don't know if you've read this before, but I have an idea you have never given this a lot of thought. Here's Moses telling Almighty God to repent of the evil that he's done, or the evil that he's got in mind doing. <laughs> Man, that makes me shake my head. I say, Lord, have mercy. What kind of audacity for any man, let alone Moses, to, to tell God to repent? Are you serious? That's exactly what he said. He said, Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self, and saidest unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and all this seed that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. Moses made some really tough intercession for these people, guys. Israel had sinned and there was no repentance in them. But instead of Moses arguing, give me a chance to get down here and ask these people to repent, God is instead asking God Almighty to repent. And the most amazing thing of that whole story is in verse 14, because the Bible said, And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do to this people. Uh, oh my goodness. Guys, this is mind-blowing stuff. Moses told God to repent, and God repented. Now, there's a whole lot of takeaways from that one little incident, not the least of which is the fact that God was actually persuaded not to do a horrible thing that he had intended to do. And for what it's worth, that gives me encouragement to know that even when God is so angry, He's ready to completely annihilate an entire generation of Jews. God instead changed His mind and didn't do it. If God could be persuaded back yonder to not to destroy Israel when they worshiped the golden calf, that encourages me to know that no matter how far you and I may have strayed from the plan and the purpose of God, that God can be persuaded to save us nevertheless, to give us another chance. Now, my subject again is the healing power of repentance. I want you to stay with me because in the first few minutes of this lesson, you're not going to get my point. I'm, I'm just trying to set the stage for something really powerful here in just a moment. Because the fact is, in the Old Testament, the word repent appears 22 times in 21 verses. 22 times the word repent shows up in 21 verses. Out of those 22 times, 19 of those times, it's talking about God repenting. Only three times when the word repent was used in the Old Testament did it refer to men repenting. Every other time it was talking about God repenting. You may not believe that, but it's the truth. In Exodus 13, uh, in Exodus 32, 12, which I just read to you, where uh, Moses said, Repent of this thy evil. Now let me read the 
Hebrew word for repent here and tell you what it means. The Hebrew word is nakam, N-A-C-H-A-M. When God repents, the Hebrew word there for repent is nakam, and it is a primitive root properly, which means to sigh. Listen carefully. To sigh, to breathe strongly, that is to take a deep breath. By implication, to be sorry. In a favorable sense, to pity or to console. In an unfavorable sense, to avenge oneself. So, let me make this clear, that when God repents, this is not the same kind of repentance that we're talking about when men repent. In fact, if you go through the Hebrew text of the Bible, you'll find out the word that's used when God repents is an altogether different word from the word that's used when men repent. In this case, it's the Hebrew word nalkam, and it means to sigh, take a deep breath, to have pity or sorrow. So what, what Moses was effectively asking God to do was to take a deep breath, to sigh, to have pity, to have sorrow for this great tragedy that was taking place. And Moses was effective in appealing to God, and God did sigh. He did take a deep breath. He did have pity. He did feel sorrow for this situation. Moses just reminds him, God, if you kill, if you kill these children of Israel down here because they've built this golden calf, then you will have made this whole promise that you've made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob of, of none effect. You will have basically ended that covenant by this one single act. Secondly, you've just now delivered these people from Egypt, and all of Egypt over there, including Pharaoh, has seen what's happened. And it's going to be a laughing stock in Egypt when they realize that God led the children of Israel out of Egypt to destroy them. What kind of a story that's going to be? And Moses effectively prevailed with God. And I don't know about you. But I'm motivated by that example to say I want to be able to intercede with God for people of my generation. I want to be able to say to God, please, God, have mercy on my loved ones. Have mercy on my family. Have mercy on my friend. Have mercy on my neighbors and my friends. And I have hope that he will because God is willing. By this very text, it's proven. God is willing to take a deep breath, to sigh, to have pity. And to show sorrow. And I just run quickly through uh, several of these examples of where God is. And, and here's the odd thing about it. When you go to Numbers 23, 19, listen to this. It sounds exactly that. It sounds like a perfect contradiction of what I've just told you. Because Moses said in Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. It's the same word. Sigh, sorrow, pity. Take a deep breath. God is not a man that he should repent. Now, I want you to consider this. There are many words in human languages. And, of course, I can only speak for the English language because that's my native language. That's the only language I have any kind of mastery in. But I know there are many words in our vocabulary that the meaning of those words change with context. You know... If if I, if I take one of these books off the shelf and I throw the book at you, it's probably going to hurt you, especially if it's a big book like this. But if you go into a court of law and you're being tried by a judge or a jury, 
you've, you've almost certainly heard somebody at some time use the phrase that when they convicted someone of that crime, the judge threw the book at him. Have you heard that? When a judge throws the book at a criminal, that doesn't mean he picked up a book and threw him and hit him with a book. It means that he took the book of the law, that is, the laws and statutes of the land, and he used all the laws and statutes against that criminal and convicted him and sentenced him. And the reason I'm telling you that is just to show you there's so many examples in the human language. You could probably think of a lot of things where the meaning of a word changes in the context. And so when Moses is saying that God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of a man that he should repent, we we know and we must know and we must understand that God does not repent like a man. When men repent, men repent because they've done something wrong. They have transgressed the laws of God. When God repents, He didn't do anything wrong. God, God is the righteous judge. God is holy. He's perfect. God has never sinned, nor will He ever sin. So when God repents, He's not, he's not making amends for some transgression. He's not repenting like a man. So you have to understand the context of a verse has a profound bearing on its application and its meaning. So on one hand, God repents. Another verse says he can't repent, but he, but he does. He does, but he doesn't. He, he repents like God, but he doesn't repent like a man. You go on through Deuteronomy 32 and 6. The Lord shall judge his people and repent himself. Here's the third example is God repenting of being harsh with his people. 1 Samuel 15, 29, also the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent. Guys, am I just talking out of both sides of my mouth? Am I saying God does repent? God doesn't repent? God does repent? God doesn't repent? Well, that's exactly what the Bible says. But, but again, we're back to the context. What does the context mean? God does not repent like a man. He repents only like God. He sighs. He breathes deeply. He has pity. He shows sorrow. When a man repents, now let me go, I'm going to go ahead and skip, I'm not going to deal with all these verses, but there are plenty of examples exactly what I'm, uh, of the kind I've just mentioned here. But I want to go down to one of these examples where we see a man repenting, and that, uh, I find an example like that in Ezekiel 14, 6. Thus say to the house of Israel, thus saith the Lord God, repent! And turn yourself from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abomination. In this case, the word repent is the Hebrew word for the kind of repentance that men do. And I want to show you what it is. Uh, in the concordance, it is the word shub, S-H-U-B. It's a Hebrew word, S-H-U-B. And it means to turn back or to return or to retreat from a thing. To start again. So... When you and I repent, and, and, and I'm, I've got to remind you one more time, I'm, I'm talking about on the subject tonight of the healing power of repentance. Listen carefully. The healing power of repentance. When you and I repent, we turn from the wrong that we've done. The Bible says if we will confess our faults, He is faithful and just to forgive us. Uh, God said, I dwell with those that are of a broken and a contrite. When you, when you express contrition, that means you humble yourself. You show yourself to be, in effect, admitting your lowliness, admitting your wrongdoing, admitting your sin, your transgressions against God. And for what it's worth, the very definition of sin is the transgression of the law. Sin is the transgression of the law. Now, if we, 
If we believe what some of these modern free grace people preach, that the law no longer exists, that we're no longer under the law, then then there wouldn't be any sin. The Apostle Paul said, before the law came, I knew no sin. But when the law came, I became a sinner. Another verse says the law, listen carefully, the law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. What's all that mean? The law shows us what God says is right and wrong. Now, the, the classic case of that is the Ten Commandments itself. We see in the Ten Commandments, God says, Thou shalt have no other gods. Thou shalt not worship any idols. You not commit adultery. You not you not you not kill. You not steal. You not lie. You not bear false witness. All down the line. But along with the Ten Commandments, you have hundreds, many hundreds of other, shall we say, lesser commandments. Now, if you believe these people that tell you that we're no longer no longer under the law, then you think I don't have to do any of that stuff. But I'm here to tell you we are not out from under the law. Here's the truth: the law does not save us, but it is still the schoolmaster that brings us to Jesus Christ. What's that mean? That means the law shows us that we are indeed in transgression. We are sinners. Paul said we have all sinned. We've all sinned. We've all come short of the glory of God. We have all transgressed against God. It's just as true in the New Testament as it is in the Old Testament. And for what it's worth, those of you who say, well, I'm not saved by the law. Do you realize the Bible never once said we're saved by the law? We're not saved by the law. We're saved, if it were possible, we would be saved by the keeping of the law. But in fact, nobody can keep the law. The law was intended to show us what is right and what is wrong. The law is intended to make me know what God is pleased with and what God is displeased with. But there has always been that caveat. Once you acknowledge that you have indeed transgressed the laws of God, then there is this alternative. Even in the Old Testament, you had the option of going to God with a sacrificial offering. You could take a bullock, a goat, a ram, a lamb, and you could... Offer that sacrifice on an altar, and God would receive that sacrifice as a payment, as a compensation for the sin, and would then wash away your sins by the blood of that of that creature. But we know that in the New Testament, Jesus Christ, Paul tells us in the book of Hebrews, the blood of uh, bullocks and goats could never save us. All those animals did in the Old Testament was to pass our sins forward to Calvary. Only at Calvary did God Almighty come down in the flesh and sacrifice His own body. He Once and for all, Jesus Christ, when John the Baptist introduced Him at the Jordan River, He said, Behold the Lamb of God. you got to know those Jews knew what that meant. Behold the Lamb of God. This is the Lamb of God. This is God's supreme sacrifice. Jesus Christ came in the flesh to sacrifice His body, to die, to shed His blood as God's Lamb for our sins. And now we don't have to go fetch an animal and bring it sacrificially to an altar. We go fetch Jesus Christ and by His blood. The Bible said, without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. 
In the Old Testament, that blood was the blood of an animal. In the New Testament, it's the blood of Jesus Christ. The law is still the schoolmaster. The law is still the rule. Don't you think God doesn't require us to keep the law? He most certainly does. Jesus said, the Father loves me because I keep His commandments. And He said, I love you because you keep my commandments. Listen to me. Jesus even introduced additional commandments in the New Testament. He didn't didn't do away with the commandments. Jesus did not do away with the commandments. It's still a sin to commit adultery. It's still a sin to murder. It's still a sin to have other gods. It's still a sin to commit incest and immorality according to the moral laws of of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Those sins are still standing. Those laws are still standing. And it's our business not to commit those sins, but if we do, we have to repent And we have to plead with God to wash us in the blood of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something. Whenever you you have committed that sin, I want you to understand, sin, first of all, it separates you from God. That's what the Bible says. But the first thing that was said about it is that if you sin, when God had Adam and Eve in the garden, He told them, said, of all the trees in the garden you can eat, except for that one tree in the midst of the garden which was turned out to be the knowledge of the, of good and evil god said if you eat that tree you're going to die you surely die and you you can think of that if you want i suppose as god promising to kill them you can say well god was pronouncing a curse and saying if you do that i'm going to kill you that's really not what he was saying what he was saying was if you eat that tree that tree's going to kill you if you do the thing that is forbidden that that act of doing what is forbidden is a lethal act. It's a fatal act. It's like it's like drinking poison. If you eat that tree, it may taste wonderful, it may taste sweet, it may taste delicious, but it's poison because it's contrary to the will of God. And and that's what I want you to understand. Sin is its own penalty. God doesn't have to curse us for sin. Sin curses us. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And it is appointed unto man once to die because of that. I mean, come on, guys. God did not make us to die. He intended us to live forever. I suppose that if Adam and Eve had not eaten the forbidden fruit, they'd probably still be alive and still be in the Garden of Eden. They would have no doubt eventually partaken of the tree of life and they would have lived forever. But because they ate the forbidden fruit, they were cast out of the garden and an angels were put, two cherubs were put there to guard the way of the tree of life so that man in his sin could not have eternal life. And we know what happened. Adam and Eve died. And so has every single solitary generation since Adam. Death is a part of our DNA because sin entered into our DNA. What I want to tell you is when you repair that DNA, you spring back to health, and you spring back to eternal life. And that is what I'm talking about when I say there is a healing power in repentance. I want you to understand that I see righteousness and sin as a dichotomy. On one hand, there is virtue. When you do God's will, you are virtuous. Read about all the fruit of the Spirit, about meekness, temperance, faith, long-suffering, kindness. Uh, read about all of, of faith, hope, and love. It, just go through the Bible. There are 
probably many hundreds of uh, particular virtues that you could discover uh, throughout the pages of the Bible. When you walk in the will of God, you, you have many virtues. And if you take the word virtue and, it, and it, turn that into an adjective, then you get the word virtuous. A virtuous man or a virtuous woman is one who has virtue because they do what God wills them to do. Adam and Eve were virtuous until they sinned. But then when you sin, you commit what we call vice. So you have virtue versus vice. Virtue versus vice. If you have virtue, you are virtuous. If you have vice, you are, get this one, vicious. The adjective form of vice is vicious. Think about that. You remember when God told uh, Cain and Abel, when Cain offered a better uh, when Abel offered a better sacrifice than his brother Cain, and Cain got mad, God told Cain, "said Why are he asked him first? Why are you wroth, and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not well, sin lies at your door." That's one of the most profound doctrinal statements in the early pages of the Bible. It's a it's a precedent for all of time. If you do well, you will be accepted. If you do not well, sin lies at your door. You will fall into vice, and you will become vicious. And you know what happened to Cain? He refused to change his ways. All he'd had to do was to learn a lesson from Abel. If he'd have looked at what Abel had brought, Cain had brought the fruit of the field, Abel had brought a blood sacrifice. They didn't even know in those days that blood sacrifices were a part of God's eternal plan of redemption. But but somehow, miraculously, Abel had done the right thing. And so God said, if you do well to Cain, you'll be accepted. But if you don't do well, sin lies at your door. That is to say, vice lies at your door, and you will become vicious. And that's exactly what happened. Cain, it would have been so easy for Cain just to mimic what he'd seen his brother do. He could have he could have gone and got an animal from the field and offered it as a sacrifice too. I mean, he was a keeper of the land, but no doubt he had a few animals. He could have found, or he could have bought one from his brother. He could have traded some of his crops for a creature. I mean, it was obvious all he had to do was emulate what his brother had been accepted doing. But he wouldn't do that. He was proud or arrogant or whatever, whatever, the, whatever it was in him that refused to repent ended up being his demise because God said if you do not well, sin lies at your door, vice lies at your door, viciousness. And that immediately led to Cain rising up in, in anger and jealousy and murdering his brother. And I'm telling you, when you are unwilling to repent, when you're unwilling to mend your ways, when you transgress against God, you have effectively corrupted all that you were as a righteous and virtuous person. Now listen carefully. When you go back in creation, you see that God created everything by His Word. He said, let there be light. Light was created by the Word of the Lord. He said, let the dry land come up out of the waters. So the, 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 the land and the seas were created by the Word of God. God said, let there be uh, trees, herb-bearing, uh, herbs, trees bearing fruit and seed in their fruit. God created the the shrubbery and the trees and the plants by his word. He created the 
the fowl of the air by his word. He created the fishes of the sea by his word. He created the four-legged creatures, all the other creatures on earth by his word. The only thing God never created by his word was man because the Bible said he scooped in the dust of the earth, he formed a man, and then he breathed into that that form, and man became a living soul. Man became a living soul. And in the garden, God gave him his word to see what was going to come of it. And Adam failed the test. Adam was not yet begotten by the word. God was trying to beget him by the word, but he, he disobeyed the word. But he was condemned because he disobeyed the word of God, and instead he obeyed the word of Satan, the, the word of the serpent. He, he obeyed the lie. He followed the lie, and when he did, he corrupted himself. And, that, and again I say, Adam didn't die so much because God threatened him. He died because what he did was deadly. When you when you take false words, when you take false teachings and false beliefs and lies of the devil, when you begin to embrace the lies and the false doctrines and the false teachings, it's not that God is so mad that He curses you, but it's that the lies themselves are like poison. They kill you, they kill you, they kill you, and you cannot have relationship with God while you're believing and doing lies. It's like... If you had obeyed the Word of God, and it's just like the DNA in my body, if you have perfect DNA, then you're going to have perfect health effectively. But if you have, if your DNA has been mutated, if you have a, an aberration in your DNA and your chromosome and your spiral helix there, if there, if that chain is broken, if something goes wrong, then any kind of Deformities, any kind of diseases could spring from that. You want to keep your DNA structure sound and healthy and perfect, as it were. But when you introduce lies, you are effectively mutating your genes. It's like putting toxins in your body. You know, you know that I, uh, what's going on in our world today. We're being poisoned by so many toxins in our water supply and in our food supply and in the air and so many things and it, it it corrupts us it causes cancers and every kind of disease because it gets into our dna and modifies our dna and that's what lies and false teachings do whereas the word of god is pure the word of god created a perfect dna and it's true in the spiritual dimension when the word of god is listened to and lived by and obeyed we have perfect health spiritually when we sin, we sentence ourselves to death. And that is why there is so much healing power in repentance. When you do what's wrong, the longer you do it, the more deleterious the effect it is. If you've lived in sin for years, you, you undoubtedly know what I'm talking about. Those of you that have perhaps been in church for a while, been out of church and done wrong, the vices... And the viciousness of living in sin is so hurtful, it's so harmful. What, what, what comes? What kind of things happen to a person who lives in sin? Oftentimes it affects their health. When you're drinking and drugging and partying and doing stupid stuff, it destroys your health. When you're living in sin, you live under condemnation. That creates depression. People become bipolar they become manic depressed they become schizophrenic and all kind of crazy things when people when people when their minds are divided between right and wrong when they when they when chaos ensues and when their brains get filled with so much 
contradictory value systems and one voice says this is right and this voice says this is right and and people get they get so messed up and people get people get suicidal and people get uh socially isolated because they can't deal with the public they they get anxiety they get panic attacks they get fear bound by fear and and just i mean how long you want me to sit here and just uh drag up all the different effects of sin sin brings marriages good marriages to end sin divides parents from their children sin divides husbands from their wives sin divides family from their friends sin divides jobs sin causes trouble on the job sin causes trouble everywhere you go sin is a horrible thing it wrecks you makes you sick it makes your mind sick it hurts your finances sometimes Sometimes it makes you lose a job. How long do you want me to go on talking about all the negative effects of sin? You know exactly what I'm talking about. But when you repent, listen carefully. I'm talking about the healing power of repent. When you admit that I have disobeyed God's plan, I have disobeyed the laws of God, I've been doing things that I should not have been doing. I've been worshiping the wrong gods. I've had idols. I've committed adultery. I've killed. I've hated. I've been covetous. I've bore false witness. I've done all these things that God said I'm not supposed to do. I've been immoral. I've done things of this nature. And all of these great, holy, righteous laws of God that could have made you whole have been suspended and you've been become a victim of your sins. you become a victim of the lies and the disobedience and the heresies and the condemnation that destroys people. And the vast multitude of all people. Jesus said, broad is the way. That leads to destruction. But straight is the gate. And narrow is the way that leads to life everlasting. What does that mean? It means that so many people will never correct their ways. So many people will never mend. They will do what's wrong all the days of their life. And they'll die a lot, They'll die a death of great, great tragedy. There's healing power and repentance. You want, you want healing in your mind... Search your heart and repent of your sins. You want healing for your spirit? Search your heart and repent of your sins. You're holding grudges. You're unforgiving. Did you know Jesus said, if you won't forgive your brother, you will not. your heavenly Father will not forgive you? I know people right now that are suffering mental anguish because they're unforgiving. They're waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for somebody to apologize to them for something when the fact is they need to go ahead and forgive them right now and get it over with. It doesn't make any difference if that person that has offended you ever repents to you. You need to repent to them and you need to repent before God and put that all under the blood of Jesus Christ. And it will heal you like nothing you've ever imagined. I know that for three years when I was a young man, I left church, I left God, I denounced God, I, I declared myself to be an atheist. My wife and I, my kids, we lived totally apart from God for almost three full years. It had such a horrible, horrible effect on me. We were into drugs and drinking and doing all kind of stupid stuff. And at, at the end of the matter, I began to absolutely fall apart. My mind, my spirit, my health. And would have died. I almost did die. I, in fact, I, I, I came just a hairbreadth of dying one night. And then I realized that the path I had chosen was altogether the wrong path and that there really was a God and I was in a lot of trouble with Him and I need to get right. And I'm going to tell you, 
that the one morning at 5.30 in the morning when I made up my mind, I'm going to get right with God. From 5.30 in the morning to 10.30 in the morning, I spent praying and asking God's forgiveness for all the gross and heinous sins that I've been guilty of. And that day, God began to heal me. This is 40 years ago, almost. And I've been whole since that day. But I've learned something about it. Every single time I waver, every single time I disobey God, every time I do a thing I'm not supposed to do, that is the time, right then and right there, to make amends. It's time to repent. Some of you haven't repented in years. Some of you don't believe in repentance. Some of you never think about repentance. Some of you feel no guilt. You don't want to believe, you want to blame everybody but yourself. You're never going to be saved. You're just going to deteriorate. You're going to get worse and worse and worse and worse until you learn how to repent. Do you know that in the book of Revelation, when you read about the seven churches, how the angel of God, the angels of God spoke to the seven churches of Asia and, and preached to all of them? Four out of the seven churches, there was Ephesus, Sardis, Pergamos, and Thyatira. Four of the seven churches of Asia were specifically told by the angel, repent, or I'm going to remove your place in the as it were, the seven candlesticks of the church. The seven candlesticks represent the seven churches. He told them effectively, if you don't repent, I'm going to take your candlestick out of the candelabra. God says, I'm going to remove your place in the kingdom so much. And that message is true to you and me too. If we don't repent, Jesus said twice, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. You have to understand, there is no right standing with God without repentance. I don't care how much your preacher tells you the grace of God... You, there's nothing you can do to improve your relationship with God. That's a that's a damnable lie. You cannot possibly, it is impossible to improve your relationship with God without genuine repentance. And that goes for every sin you commit. There is no such thing in this universe as the grace of God for an unrepented sin. God has never and will never forgive an unrepented sin. Our sins have to be repented of for us to obtain the grace of God and to, for us to be washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. If we sin, the Bible says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. Why is he the advocate? Because he's the lamb. He is the man between men and God. He's the intercessor. He's the high priest. He's all those things. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. He's the door. If you want to see God, you have to go through Jesus. Jesus said, no man comes to the Father by me. God is the eternal spirit. Jesus is the man in whom God dwells. If you want to know God, you have to go to Jesus, and you have to go with repentance. And if you don't take repentance with you, you're not going to ever get right relationship with God. Peter repented of his having betrayed the Lord the night Jesus was crucified, but Judas didn't repent, and he went went out and hanged himself. If you don't repent, you're just asking for self-destruction. You're inviting your own demise without repentance. Because I'm telling you, there's healing power in repentance. And I'm, I'm just, I'm begging you. Don't let another day go by without repenting of everything you've got to repent of. Don't let one single transgression go unremediated. Don't let your sins against God linger even one more day. If you don't have anything, if you don't have anything else to pray about, pray for your own soul, friend. If you don't feel any burden for anybody else, get a burden for your own soul. Find a place. Get on your face somewhere. Get on your knees. Go to a back room in your house. Turn the light off. Kneel beside a bed or beside a chair and say, God, I'm searching my heart today. I want you to take every sin 
that I'm guilty of. Every sin I've ever committed that has not been repented of. I want to, and, and, and this this is, and i got to deal with this before I quit. Because that the meaning of that word in the Hebrew, shub, S-H-U-B, those verses in the Old Testament where the word repent refers to men repenting, it means to turn from. It means to return. What does that mean? It's like a reset. See, if, if you have, if your spiritual DNA has been corrupted by sin, when you repent and go back to God and obtain forgiveness and remission of sins through His blood, then you have effectively reset your spiritual DNA back to perfect. It's like, it's like hitting the reset button on your computer. Sometimes you get on a computer and it locks up the screen. You can't get the program to operate. And no matter how mad you get, it's not going to function. There's nothing to do but turn the power off and turn it back on. And, and that's what repentance does. Repentance turns off that old sinful man and returns you to that virtuous person that God meant you to be. Sin expunges, or I should say, repentance expunges the sin. True repentance touches the heart of God, and God will effectively repent of the evil He will do to you if He sees that repentance in you. And again, I say God's repentance is different than our repentance. God's, God's repentance is sorrow and pity and having mercy on us. Our repentance is returning to the right way. And if you haven't returned to the right way, if you've cussed and lied and cheated and stole and committed every sin under the sun, <clears throat> or maybe you've only committed a few sins, it'll make a difference how much. You know, if sin is a transgression of the law, which it is, <clears throat> the Bible said if you keep, the book of James says if you keep every law in the book but fail in one of them, then you've failed in all of them. Now, I want you to get a hold of that. If Let's say there's 600, 700 notable laws in the Old Testament. If you keep 599 of them and break one of them, then you're guilty of all of them. That's what the Bible said in the book of James. What does that mean? That means the law never was meant to save us. The Bible has never promoted the idea that the law saves us. It is the law that shows us our sin, and it's repentance that saves us. It is putting away those sins. It's acknowledging the sins, confessing them, and returning back to God's will, returning back to virtue, returning back to righteousness, returning back to God's way. Now, we know this much. When when the Apostle Peter stood in... Uh, the upper room on the day of Pentecost, 120 people had just received the Holy Ghost speaking in other tongues. The crowds outside and all around Jerusalem had heard what was going on down there. They said, we heard you, we heard you guys speaking in our language. There was Parthians down there heard the Parthian language. There were Medes that heard the Median language. There were other language, Ethiopians, all kind of people. And they said, how do we hear these, all these languages coming out of this room in here. Well, none of those people knew those languages. They were speaking in unknown tongues. They had no clue what they were speaking. They had no, there was no idea in their head that they were speaking any of those languages. It was totally unknown tongues to them. And yet it was God, really. God was actually speaking to these people. But he's saying now, 
God wants you to have his spirit. And what that was, was that, that was the spirit of Christ, which is the spirit of virtue. It's the spirit of holiness, the spirit of righteousness. And Peter said, you guys have sinned. This very week you have, I mean, this very occasion here, you have crucified the Lord of glory. It had been, what, 50 days since Calvary. He said, the only way you're ever going to have right standing with God is you're going to have to repent of having crucified the Lord of glory. He said, you know, if you'd have known what, if you'd have had any idea what you're doing, you'd have never done it. And they said, well, what should we do? And he said, repent. Repent, 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 repent. Return. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you. Every one of you. Say that every one of you. Not not 90% of you, not 95% of you, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the same gift of the Holy Ghost. So the spirit that fell that day that caused them to speak in unknown tongues was intended for everybody. Jesus said, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how I am straightened until it is accomplished. John the Baptist said, I indeed baptize you with water to repentance, but he that cometh after me whose shoes I am not worthy to bear, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. So this is a process, guys. It's a three-part process. Repent. Be baptized for the remission of your sins in the name of Jesus and receive the Holy Ghost speaking to other tongues as the Spirit of God gives you utterance. That's, that's the new birth. Repentance, the blood of Jesus, the waters of baptism, and the infilling of the Holy Ghost, the fire of God. Those three things are essential to the salvation plan. That is the, that is the new birth. Repentance, remission of sins through water baptism in Jesus' name, and the infilling of the Holy Ghost, the empowerment of God speaking in other tongues, the evidence of the Holy Ghost baptism. It's just all over the book, guys. It's the truth. And I'm talking to you now about the healing power of repentance. You want to get your house in order? You want to get your life in order? You want to cure what's wrong with you right now? Your first step, and then and the most important step in it all, is repent of your sins. I'm going to tell you something. We're facing some hard times in the days ahead, guys. We're facing the hardest time. We're living in the last days. We're, we're facing, we've got the great tribulation right upon us. We've got the mark of the beast right down the line, not far from here. We've got, we've got the most horrific things the world has ever seen have been prophesied for these last days. You better make sure, make sure, make sure, make sure there's no sin standing between you and God. You need to learn this lesson I'm trying to teach you tonight, and that is there is healing power in repentance. I hope that somebody listening to me tonight will take this message and repent of your sins and get your heart right with God and witness the transformation that will take place when you do. And that's my message. God bless you. I love you so much. I thank you for hearing me tonight. I pray that God will use this message to help you get in right relationship with God no matter where you've been or what you've done. God's able to save from the guttermost to the uttermost. He can save you. He can save anybody. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wants to save me. He wants to save you. He wants to save your family, your friends, your whole town. Let God have his way. Repent and be healed. In Jesus' name.